Would you ever notice sometimes in life those really big questions just kind of come bubbling up out of your heart into your mind and it can come at really random moments. You can be sitting there washing up the dishes in the evening and you can find yourself thinking, what is this life all about? <laughs> is there more to life than this one? What's, what's coming next? These big questions about life and particularly the question in regards to is there life beyond this one, beyond the grave? That, that question will come up for you. It can come up at random little moments. It can come up at, like Nev prayed a minute ago, in, in like catastrophic moments where there's floods going on and it rattles your foundations and we find ourselves asking the big questions, what's this about? Is there more than this life? It certainly will be in, in certain moments in life you'll find yourself considering eternity and life beyond this one. Um, we've had a few um, deaths and losses this year. And they're certainly the moments, aren't they, when you're at a funeral, um, when you've lost a loved one. Um, you've lost, and some of you have lost a dad this year. Some of you have lost a father-in-law. Some of you have lost a husband. Some of you have lost other family members. You've lost good friends. And, and, and it's coming for us, you know. And as it comes in those moments when we lose someone and there's death that's come into our life, how can we not ask the bigger questions? Where's this person really gone? Like, and it's in the moments of funerals and in the moments of sadness that you'll notice that um, most people will try and offer words of comfort. And, and we'll do it to each other because we, we want there to be words to comfort us in our pain and in our grief. And so whether the person was a Christian or not, usually the words that come out and are offered to each other by well-meaning people trying to comfort are just words along the lines of, well, you know, rest in peace, you know. It's okay that they're at peace now, you know, we hear that. Um, they're not in pain anymore. Uh, they've gone to a better place. You know, these, these are the things we say to each other in those kind of heavy moments. Now, they're, they're pretty big claims, you know. Are they true? Is it the case that we can find ourselves in these moments saying things and it's just wishful thinking? You know, is it, is it just sentimental platitudes that are offered out to try to comfort in these really hard moments? Or is there a firm and solid basis to say these things, to make such a claim? As we come to chapter 14 in John's Gospel, this is, this is the world we're brought into. The huge claims about what comes next and how you get there. As we come to chapter 14 in John's Gospel, you get the famous words of Jesus. And whether you've been in church before or not, and I'm, there's a few faces I don't know tonight, so maybe this is new for you. And if it is, it's awesome to have you here with us. Here are some of the most famous words of Jesus, and you've probably heard them before. John 14, verse 6. I'll get Steve to pop this up. Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And these words out of the mouth of Jesus take us to the very heart of the Christian message. You want to know what Christianity is all about? Just bunker down on these words. This takes you to the guts of it all. 
these words of Jesus. What we're going to do is we're going to tackle what is said here in this chapter in two parts. Firstly, we're going to ask that question, you know, can we be sure that there is life beyond this one? That, that question. Can we be sure that life with God in heaven beyond the grave actually exists? Like, is it real? And, and then secondly, how can you make sure you get there? Those two things. Because that's what's being addressed here by Jesus here in chapter 14. Because Jesus is spending his last few hours with his best mates, his closest followers, his disciples. He's got his final night before he knows full well that he's going to be executed. And he's trying to prepare his disciples for the fact that he's just about to die. And as he shares with them that he's about to go, he's about to be executed, you might imagine they're troubled. And so Jesus' words here are to his closest followers who are troubled here in this moment. How can you be sure that there's life beyond the grave? Some people, and I think most of us will um, kind of speculate about life beyond the grave, and it can be like a philosophical speculation. Um, it might just make sense to you that there's, there's got to be something that comes next. You think this can't be all there is, so there must be more, and that's just a speculation of the mind. But, but that might be the big thing that you hang on to and think, no, there's got to be more than this. Here's the words of C.S. Lewis, um, famous author, wrote Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, and also Mere Christianity and many other great theological books. Look at this. C.S. says this, if I, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy. The most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. Do you follow that? That's a philosophical speculation. You know, have, have you got unmet desires in this life? Do you feel frustrated when people are taken from you? CS would say, yeah, that's, that's because you're made for more than what's going on here. Now, that, that might be enough for you. You might go, yeah, look, there's got to be more because of that. But really, that's just a speculation, isn't it, about life. What about objective proof? How can we know for sure that there is more than just this? You, usually what you need to have something proved to you is to see it for yourself. Yeah? Would that prove it to you if you could see the next life yourself? I tell you what, all those who have died have seen it for themselves. So they know for sure what's coming next. And the day you die, you'll know for sure as well. But maybe if there was someone who you trusted, who had gone there and then come back to tell you about it, would that do it for you? Um, there's no shortage of people who say they've had near-death experiences. Have you read these stories? Maybe you know someone or a death experience, and you go to Christian bookshops or look online and there's no shortage of books written that are pseudo-Christian books by people who claim to have died, gone to heaven, had a conversation, seen the glory of God, and then decided to come back and tell us about it. And there's, So there's books you can read, but would you trust what's being said there? Because it's certainly quite sensational, a lot of those experiences that are described in those books. Is that proof? Well, it's kind of subjective, isn't it? It's what that person honestly believes they've experienced. But is it true? Could it be imagined? 
Could there be medical explanations for why people have hallucinations or experiences like this in near death or death kind of moments? Some of you who are in the medical world might be able to speak to that. My personal issue with trusting the stories about people who claim to have died, gone to heaven and given a choice about whether they want to stay or come back, my personal issue with that is if that happens to me and I find myself face to face with the glory of Jesus and seeing the reality of God in heaven and the next life and then I'm given a choice whether I want to stay or come back and tell you mugs about it, I, I think I'm going to stay. I'm sorry. I'm going to stay. That's my hunch. I love you, you know. And I'd, but I tell you what, I think that's going to be the very moment where you see the one who made you, you see what you're for, and you don't want to be anywhere else. You see why we exist when we're in the presence of the one who made us and loves us. Yeah, I don't think I'm going to choose to come back. So people who choose to come back, I just don't know that I would do that. So where do you find objective truth anyway? Well, where can we find... What do you, we need the voice of authority, don't we? Who's the voice of authority? Well, if there is a God who made us, and there is a God who we're going to meet on that day and knows about life beyond this one, then surely it's his voice. Surely it's his words. And when you come to chapter 14 of John's Gospel, you come across someone who speaks words and they claim to be the voice of authority. They're claiming to be God. This is Jesus. Let's come and have a look at his words. As I mentioned before, he's trying to comfort his disciples who are feeling troubled. And so look at his first words there in verse 1. He says, Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house, so my Father's house has many rooms. If it were not so, um, would, I, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me so that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. Look at the language that Jesus is using here. He's, he's, he knows he's about to die and he's been speaking about his coming death, which is just around the corner. And he says to them, who are they're feeling troubled, he's like, don't be troubled and here's why you need not be troubled. He says, you need to, you believe in God, believe also in me. So that's a pretty big claim he's making there. You, you believe the words of God, okay, you've got to trust what I say here which is Jesus aligning himself with the voice of God, is it not? Just like you believe in God, you need to believe what I'm about to say to you right now. And then he talks about what's next and the life with God as the Father's house. You see that in language in verse 2? My Father's house has many rooms. Now, is Jesus saying that heaven is literally going to be a huge house, like a mansion that's got many rooms? Maybe. I think it's likely he's using metaphorical language to talk about the reality of life with God. And to talk about it in this way, it's a house with many rooms. They can understand that. I think what Jesus is trying to get across is he's trying to say, look, life beyond this with God is real. It exists. It's a place. 
People go there. I am from there. I've come to be with you and I'm about to leave and go back there. And it is my father's house. And just to call heaven and life beyond this life your father's house, what are you saying about yourself? You're the son. You are God the son. Jesus is making big claims here about himself. He's saying, this is the house I've always been in. This is the place I've always been. I've been with God the father and and I know what's there and I'm about to go back and there's room for you. That's huge. That's huge what Jesus says here. It's so huge that even his disciples who have been with him for a couple of years now, listening to everything he says and watching everything he does, they're pretty sceptical and they doubt. So maybe you're sitting here thinking, yeah, I'm still a bit, there's doubt in my heart, Tim, and please acknowledge what's going on for you in this moment. Don't feel like you need to pretend it's not happening. If you're feeling doubtful and sceptical about the words of Jesus here, well, you're right with his own disciples, okay? So look at verse five. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't even know where you're going, so how do we know the way to get there? Thomas is just confused altogether about what Jesus is saying. So I don't don't know where you, I don't know where you're going, so how do you know? He's just confused. And he's certainly saying, I don't know how to get where you're talking about. Look at verse eight. Philip, one of the other of Jesus' disciples, says to him, Lord, show us the Father and that'll be enough for us. So if, if, if you want us to believe your words, Jesus, just show us God uh, and then we'll believe you. This is Jesus' own disciples. Look at how Jesus responds to Philip and the disciples when they ask they want to see God. Look what he says in verse 9. Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip? Even after I've been among you for such a long time, anyone who has seen, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. Cop that. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? Therefore, the words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. These are huge claims, yeah? Yep. Jesus is saying to them, you want to see the Father? You want to see the God of the universe? Um, If you've seen me, you've seen him. I am God, the Son. That's what Jesus is saying. You're standing in front of God. You want to hear his voice? Listen to my words. Because God the Father is in me and I am in him. These are huge claims and it kind of takes us in the world that we're going to be looking at over the next few weeks where we look at God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, how God is three persons perfectly united as one God. And and so in a sense, Jesus has always existed in this triune relationship. God has been a community in and of himself for all eternity. And Jesus has given us little glimpses through this section here This is where I'm from. This is the reality. Listen to my words. And then Jesus says, look, if you can't even listen to my words, look look at verse 11. Um, Believe me when I say say that I'm in the Father and the Father is in me. Or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. Yep. So Jesus is saying, look, 
Look, have you seen what I've done for the last three years? You've been walking with me, camping with me, you know, sleeping every night with me. You've seen what I've done. Yeah? You've seen my miracles. You've seen the water I turned to wine. You've seen the food I multiplied for the thousands. You saw the cripples that I healed. You saw the sick that I healed. You saw the blind that I gave sight to. You saw the water that I walked on. You saw me command the demonic. You saw the dead people that I raised back to life. Can you see how all that points to my identity as God, the Son? This is who I am. And, and Jesus' greatest work is still about to come. You see, the very next day as Jesus goes to the cross and takes the weight of the sin of the world upon himself and dies with it and then rises again three days later, there's the ultimate great work of Jesus that they're going to witness that will show them that he is the Son of God. Jesus is saying, would you look at the evidence? And so if you're sceptical here today and you've got doubts in your heart today, Jesus will say to you, can you just look at the evidence? Look at the historical evidence for the miracles, the words and the actions of Jesus and the claims of Jesus and you need to figure out what you're going to do with them because he clearly claims to be God. There are those who want to you know, paint Jesus as someone who never really claimed to be God himself. I don't know what you do with the Gospel of John, the whole thing. And his words in all the other Gospels, like he's clearly claiming to be God the Son. Look at the evidence, Jesus would say. Listen to my voice. This is the voice of authority. Have you just heard the voice of authority? Can you accept the voice of authority as he speaks clearly and says, there is life beyond this one with God in heaven beyond the grave? This is not it. There's more, and you were made for more than this. There's the first part. There is life beyond this one. You can be sure about it because the voice of authority has come to us and spoken to us. But secondly, if that's true, then really the next question is, how can you make sure you get there? That's the question, isn't it? If there is life beyond with God, how do you make sure you're going to make it in? I think that's a great question. It's the obvious question. And it's because it's the question that assumes that probably not everyone's going to get in. And, and that would make sense, wouldn't it? Even though at funerals and in grieving moments, usually most people will speak about how we all go to a better place and they're at peace now and we kind of tend to offer that to anyone and everyone. But if you push a person a little bit, you'll probably find out that everyone acknowledges that it's, it's, it's likely that not everyone gets in. Surely not everyone gets Surely not murderers or rapists or pedophiles. Surely they don't get in. Yeah? Not everyone makes it. And Jesus would say, yes, that's the case, actually. It's not just that there's life beyond this one and everyone gets it. No, no, not everyone makes it. Yeah? Jesus speaks really plainly about the realities of heaven and hell regularly in his ministry. Very real places. He talks a lot about it. And if that's the case, then how does it work? How do you make sure you're going to make the cutoff to get in? How bad have you got to be to miss out? Maybe that's the question. 
You know? Most Aussies and particularly Aussie blokes have just got a real she'll be right attitude about life and uh, let's not think too much about what's beyond this one. Um, if there is a God, um, you know, I'm sure he's a good bloke and um, he'll understand, you know, he'll understand that, you know, oh, I did my best. I had a crack at it. Oh, I wasn't perfect, but, you know, didn't do anything too bad. I think that's what most Aussie blokes think they're going to meet. But then what if you just have some deeper reflection, well, that person has a deeper reflection. Is, is your best good enough? You might not have murdered anyone, but maybe there's manslaughter. Or maybe you had an abortion or pressured someone else to have an abortion. Maybe there's been a level of abuse that you've put on others. Maybe you've been unfaithful in your marriage. Maybe you've been greedy and you've stolen. Maybe you've lied. Maybe there's actually a fair bit of hate in your heart for others who are different from you. Are you sure you make the cut? Where does God draw the line anyway? How good have you got to be to get in? How bad have you got to be to miss out? And here's where the words of Jesus come as a huge shock to most of humanity who think that that's how it's going to work, that there's a cutoff, like there's a scale Good people up here, bad people down there. And at some point, God goes, all right, you've got to be above this mark and you're in. That's just how we assume. That's how most people assume God is going to do it. And, and if you want to hold on to that assumption that there's a cutoff point about how good you've got to be, whatever you do, don't read the words of Jesus because he blows that up. Jesus says, yeah, yeah th- th- there is a cutoff in a sense, but it doesn't work like that. You don't have to be good enough to perform your way in. That's, that's not how it can work. And this, this really is the great scandal of Christianity. It's quite a shock to hear Jesus' words. Because what he basically says is, there's nothing you can do that's good enough to earn your way through your own behaviour and your own performance into the favour of God, where he will just accept you and say, you're wonderful, you deserve to be here. There's actually nothing you can do It's all about what he has done. So verse 6, chapter 14, come back to them with me again. Jesus answered, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now that does not mean that you just try and follow Jesus and be like Jesus and that's how you get in. That's not what it means to to, to get in through Jesus, to just try and live a Jesus type life. And you're in. No, no, no. That's not what it means. Jesus says, I am the way, not meaning just copy me. He means something bigger, something deeper. He's saying, you've got to enter through me. Look what he says in chapter 10, verse 9. He says, I'm the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. Jesus keeps saying the same thing over and over again so that we'd catch it and not just think it's about performing your way in. Jesus is like, I love this imagery of a gate, you know. There's only one way in, you've got to come, and Jesus is the gate, and you've got to come in through him. Chapter 11, verse 25, Jesus says it like this. Have you got 11? John 11? Oh, good on you, Steve, thanks, mate. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live 
even though they die. So you're going to die, but if you want to live beyond it, Jesus says, here's the key. And there's a word in that that helps you understand what it means to get to heaven through Jesus. It means to believe in him, which is just to put your trust in him, which is to put your trust in what he has done, not what you do. Revelation chapter 1, this is, this is the risen Lord Jesus appearing to the John who wrote this gospel um, in a vision. And the last book of the Bible, is, is, it's, a re, it's a revelation or a series of revelations. It's, it's the apocalypse. And look, look at what happens for John when he first meets the risen Lord Jesus. And prior to this, you get the description of what John sees and you would fall flat on your face too if you saw what John sees. Um, but look, when I saw him, I fell flat. I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, do not be afraid. I'm the first and the last. I'm the living one. I was dead and now look, I am alive forever and ever. And look at this last line. And I hold the keys to death and Hades. You want to know who holds the keys to the life beyond this one? Jesus goes, I've got the keys. Yep. You want to know how to survive death and Hades? Yep. Jesus goes, it's me. He says it over and over and over again. It's about putting your trust, your belief in what I have done for you. It's not about what you do to earn your way into favour and into the next life. Now, To accept this, to accept Jesus' words, means rejecting at least two things. Just think about it logically with me. To accept Jesus' words means you need to reject that it's your own performance and effort and that your own performance and effort can never be enough. And you need to reject that there's any other ways to heaven. Here's where she gets controversial. Firstly, you've got to reject that your own performance or effort, that's humbling to hear that our very best is still nowhere near enough. You know? But secondly, you need to reject that there are any other ways to get to be with God for all eternity. You know? Did Jesus say, I am a way, a truth, a life? No. Jesus says, controversially, I'm the way, the truth, the life. And then he gives it explicitly, no one gets to the Father except through me. Now, what that means, if that's true, follow me, every other religion and philosophy doesn't work to get you to God for all eternity. Yep. And what that means is there are billions, literally billions of very sincere people of other religions and other philosophies who are, Jesus would say, sincerely wrong. And they're not going to get in. They're not going to be with the one who made them and experience his love full force for all eternity. Only those who put their trust in Jesus. And Jesus is actually not backwards in coming forwards about how heavy that is. So Matthew chapter 7, which is the one you popped up before, Steve, Enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction and many enter through it. 
But small is the gate and narrow is the road that leads to life and only a few find it. So if you find yourself thinking, how can it be true if there's this many Christians but so many people of other faith, Jesus goes, no, that is going to be the deal. Tragically, there's a wide road, a wide gate and a narrow road and a narrow gate. Jesus says, this is how it is. Now, you and I, with our minds and our logic and our reason and our immersion in our culture, will easily find ourselves thinking, how can just one path of the hundreds of paths work? What about all the other paths to God? Well, there's an ancient Hindu proverb that tries to unpack this reality for us that pictures, I want you to picture this with me. Um, There's a mountain, a huge mountain before you, and God is at the top of the mountain. And the Hindu proverb describes that there are literally hundreds of paths that you can take to get yourself to God. And ultimately, it doesn't matter which one you take because all roads lead to God. And then the proverb goes on and says, really, the only person wasting their time is the one who runs around the mountain telling everyone else that their path is a dead end. How's that for a proverb? I actually think the society that we live in is way more Hindu than they think or know because that is the vast majority way of thinking of our society. To be, to be affirming is, is, is what we need to be doing these days. We certainly do need to be respectful And I hope you don't ever hear me being disrespectful. But to affirm that there are many ways and multiple paths, you know, to do that, it sounds nice and you'll be accepted and it sounds loving. And the exclusivity of the words of Jesus sounds almost outrageous and unloving. Unless, of course, it's true. (laughs) In which case, the most loving thing to do would be to run around the mountain warning people that the path they're on leads nowhere. That would be the most loving thing to do, wouldn't it? If there was only one way. Yeah? It also, um, I, I get thinking about this too. Let's say, like, does God have the right to say how you get in anyway? Like, if, if it is his eternity and it is his heaven, surely he can say how it works. Think about this. If, if I have a party at my house, I wish I had more parties at my house, but if I had a party at my house, um, it's my rules, isn't it? Do I get to set the rules? I can send out the invites. I can send out the invites to everyone and I can say this if I want to, can't I? Um, come, but there's only one way you can get in and I want you to come down the driveway and come up the side steps onto the back deck. That's how you get into my party. Do I have the right to do that? Might it be that there are people who think that that's silly, that they can't just walk in the front door? Of course. And there'll be people that think it's just unfair and silly that they can't come up the back creek from the golf course or whatever. There might be all kinds of people who think it's just ridiculous, but do I have the right to decide how people can get in and actually choose to turn away those who refuse? Of course. My house, my party, my rules... Well, I'll tell you what, if, if eternity belongs to God and it's his heaven, then surely he can say how it works, even if that doesn't make sense to you. He gets to say this. 
Now, I actually think it makes more sense than, than we think initially, once you think into it a little bit more. Um, while it appears as though there's one way and hundreds of other ways that don't work, it's really more simple than that. Really, there's just two approaches. When you look at the world religions and different philosophies and different ways people attempt to live, there's just two ways that people attempt to get to God. And these are the two ways. I'm going to put them before you here. It's DIY or DFY. Yep, can you see what's happening here? I'm going to go ahead and put all world religions and all philosophies and all personal philosophies under DIY, meaning do it yourself. You, by your own effort and your own performance and your own logic and your own reason and your own behaviour, you earn your way into God's favour. And, and this is crass, but I'm going to put every other religion apart from Christianity in that category. Buddhists will talk about the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path that you need to follow. These are the instructions of the Buddha so that you can head towards a place of enlightenment. Hindu will talk about the ceremonies that you need to continually do to appease the thousands of gods and particularly the local gods in your little vicinity to appease them and keep them with their favour towards you. Otherwise, things are going to go badly. Islam talks about following the five pillars and praying four times a day and facing east and doing a pilgrimage to Mecca and practising Ramadan so that you are a good, um, you, 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 you're good before Allah. And then there's personal philosophies where people want to make up their own moral code um, and, and, and it all sounds very unique and very wonderful, but they're all very similar, the moral code that people come up with. But you can put them all together. Though there's differences and uniquenesses, and I want to be respectful there, you can put them all together under the one foundation of do it yourself. It all boils down to what you do to get up the mountain to God. The path that you're trying to trod out to get there by your own behaviour and your own effort. And that stands so far from Christianity because Christianity is DFY. What does that stand for? Done for you. There you go. I figured some of you would get it. Done for you. It's about accepting what has been done for you. So if you want to picture the mountain for a sec and figure out how this works, if all the pathways don't get anyone up there, then how does Christianity work? Is it a pathway that you've got to just slog out by following Jesus' example? No, it's not a pathway that you take and trudge your way up there to get to God. It's, it's, it's not a path. It's a, it's a cable car that comes down to you. Here's how it works. God comes to us. He descends. He condescends from the glory of being God in heaven and in the person of the Son comes to us, steps into humanity, takes our sin upon himself, does for us what we could not do for ourselves and then rises from the dead and ascends back to God and he says, there's a way, but it's not a path that you've got to follow. There's a way and the way is the cable car. The way is putting your trust in Jesus, which in my mind, looks like climbing aboard the cable car. Can you picture that one? Does that help? To get in the thing. 
That's what it means to put your faith in Jesus. It's climb aboard him, put your trust in him, put your weight in the cable car, which is Jesus and his work on the cross for you and trust him that in him you will be taken into the favour of God and relationship with God. Does that work for you? The cable car? Maybe you can get a shirt made up. Jesus is my cable car, all right? That's how it works in my mind anyway. The paths don't work up the mountain. It's done for you by Jesus. This is what he's saying to us. This is the voice of authority. If you're not a believer here with us this afternoon, it's so good that you're here. You might have even been churched for many years, but, but there's doubt in your heart about these words of Jesus. Um, and if there's doubt and you can acknowledge it, I just want to say to you, well, what do you think? What do you think now? Has, has the voice of Jesus come booming toward you and into you by the Spirit, because if this is starting to make sense, if the cable car is making more sense than the pathway that you've got to trod yourself, it's probably because God is opening your eyes to this reality. This is what he's done for all of us. He's helped us to accept that it's true. The only way a person comes to belief is by the Spirit of God that he helps us see that this is true. And, and, and if it's starting to make sense, would you continue to look into it? Would you continue to dig? Would you continue to come along? Would you continue to wrestle with the biggest thing that you need to wrestle with in your life? Which is how to make sure you get to where you were made to be. You might claim to be a Christian many years, but when you hear Jesus say these words, I'm the only way uh, you know, to get there, you say in your heart, I, I doubt it. If there's doubt that you think Jesus is the only way, it may be that you're actually not a Christian. You might have lived like a Christian for many years, but you're yet to actually put your trust in Jesus' words here. If you are a Christian and you've put your trust in these words and you celebrate them as we read them and there's joy in your heart when you think about the cable car, not because I came up with a good idea. I'm sure someone came up with it before me and I heard it somewhere. Anyone heard that before anywhere? I don't know. I think it sounds like a good one. If you're celebrating this reality, how can you not in your celebration offer it to friends and family and neighbours, those who are on pathways that look like they make sense? And how can you just let them be and sit back and just be too polite and just quietly let them think it's okay? when you know there's only one way. Now, we need to be careful the way we share the news of Jesus, but we need to make sure we share it. And as a church, it needs to be the thing that drives us over the years that we share this news about how to get there. I'm going to finish on the words of Jesus that Adam read at the end there as well, um, because if you are a Christian and you've put your trust in this, check out the promise Check out what Jesus says that his disciples will do next. Verse 12. Um, Very truly, I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I've been doing and they will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father. 
Jesus speaks here about his followers. You're going to do greater things than these. That's pretty spectacular, isn't it? What does Jesus mean by greater things? Now, there's a lot of discussion about what that means. Some people come to the conclusion that what that means is the followers of Jesus are literally going to do greater and more spectacular miracles and more regular miracles than Jesus himself. I think Jesus is a pretty hard act to follow. My gut is that's not what he's talking about there, greater things. And my gut to steer us towards a different understanding of greater is, is when you read on and he says, um, it's because I'm going to the Father. So because I'm about to leave, you're going to do greater things. I think the greater things are this, that we're going to do as Christians. The greater things is not in regards to more spectacular miracles. The greater things is to take the, the ultimate miracle that Jesus does to provide forgiveness for sins and see that offered to a greater number of people. You see, Jesus says to his disciples, go and make disciples. And so the greater work that we get to be involved in is offering the work of Jesus to a greater number and a greater scope of people groups. And this is what's happened for the last 2,000 years. The gospel has gone out. The work of Jesus has gone out so that the greater work is, has happened and is happening so that more and more people can get in the cable car. More and more people can put their trust in the work of Jesus done for them. That's the greater thing. And that is the work that Jesus trusts, entrusts to us and says, this is what you'll be doing. Yep. So this is what we give ourselves to. And check out the prayer. He says, look at the promise at the end. Look at verse 13. And he says, I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask me for anything in my name and I will do it. Again, pretty spectacular promise. Is, is, is that saying that if you're a Christian, that anything you ask for, God is going to say yes to? Well, that can't be the case, can it? Surely you've asked for things and God's not said yes, or at least yet. Yep. Well, if you look at, pay attention to what he says, he says, and what you ask for in my name. So there's a little key to what he's calling us to be asking him for. So when he says in my name, that it, 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 it's, it's to help us understand that what is for my glory. Ask for things that are going to help me as Jesus be glorified. And what he says prior to that is really any, ask for anything that's going to glory the Father through the Son. What is it that glorifies God done through Jesus? Oh, it's his work of the cross, isn't it? Offering forgiveness. The very thing that's going to bring most glory to God the Father through Jesus is more and more people coming to put their trust and belief in Jesus. And so he's like, ask for that. Like, I want to use you to do greater things. I want the work of the gospel to go out further. Ask for that. Ask for what would bring me glory through more and more people receiving the gospel. And he says, I'm going to be tuning into those prayers. So I tell you what, as, as we step back as Christians from this passage and we rejoice in the truth that there is a way, a sure way to be with God, then we trust that God's going to use us, he's going to hear our prayers and we give ourselves to this work of seeing the forgiveness of Jesus, the work of Jesus offered to more and more, 
so that he would get glory. That's what we exist for as individuals. That's what we exist for as a church, that more and more would come to know Jesus and God would get more of the glory that he's so worthy of. How about I pray that that would be ongoingly the case for us. Oh, Father, thank you for these words. Thank you for the voice of authority that's come to us from your son, Jesus, to tell us for sure that there is life beyond the grave, that for sure there is life with you for all eternity and to give us clarity about how it works. Lord, it's controversial to hear and accept, but if it's true, Lord, we want to cling to your words that you are the way and only by putting our trust in you can we have assurance of that life beyond. Lord God, would you do greater things through us? Would there be a greater number of people who come to put their trust in Jesus through the ongoing work of your people? And Lord, would you fire us up that we would pray along these lines and that you would hear our prayers and answer them so you get more glory. Please, God, do this work in us and through us for your namesake. And the people said...